Our text this evening comes from Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3 and verse 15. Uh, Rather unusual, I suppose. Usually we think of New Testament texts that are more optimistic for these occasions, but I'm a little leery of too much optimism in the church, and so I thought we would go to Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3. This is the word of uh, our God. Ezekiel chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet so that I can speak with you. Then the Spirit entered into me as he spoke to me and made me stand on my feet, and I heard one speaking to me. He said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the sons of Israel, to a nation who are rebels, who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have revolted against me to this very day. Yes, their sons sport insolent faces and hard hearts. I'm sending you to them, and you shall say to them, here's what the Lord Yahweh says. And they, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they shall know that a prophet has been among them. But you, son of man, don't be afraid of them, and don't be afraid of their words. Both thorns and briars are with you, and you're sitting among scorpions. Their words, don't be afraid of them, and their faces, don't be terrified of them, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, listen to what I am saying to you, and don't be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. And I looked, and why a hand stretched out to me, and there in it a rolled up scroll. Then he spread it out in front of me. It was written front and back, and written on it was lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I'm giving you. So I ate, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go off, go to the house of Israel, and you shall speak my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech or difficult language, to the house of Israel, not to many peoples with unfamiliar speech and difficult language whose words you could not understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they're not willing to listen to me, for all the house of Israel... They have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. See, I have set your face hard right next to their faces and your forehead hard right next to their forehead. Like diamond harder than flint, I've made your forehead. You must not fear them nor be terrified before them for they are a rebellious house. And he said to me, son of man, all my words which I speak to you, take into your heart, hear with your ears. And go on, go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and you shall speak to them, and you shall say, here's what the Lord Yahweh has said, whether they listen or not. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a sound of a massive earthquake. How blessed the glory of Yahweh from his place. And the sound of the wings of the living creatures touching each other, and the sound of the wheels right next to them, even the sound of a massive earthquake. And the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. And I went bitter in the fury of my spirit, but the hand of Yahweh was strong over me. 
So I went to the exiles at Tel Aviv who were living by the Kabar Canal to where they were living. And I remained there seven days, totally stunned among them. The reading of the Lord's Word. My father had an old Remington portable typewriter. It's a 1920 Remington portable typewriter. It was old when I was a kid. And uh, it was about uh, 14 inches by 14 inches square. And it had, of course, ribbons, spools on either side. Some of you remember typewriters. Uh, and and uh, so on. Uh, of course, you would have to get a new ribbon when the ribbon wore out. But my father uh, realized that if you took some three-in-one oil and put on that ribbon, it extended its life. Of course, all the O's and Q's and B's and P's were all shaded in with gray uh, after that, but did it. Now, see, you take that, that uh, 1920 Remington portable typewriter of his that he had for 50 years or so, and you put it next to a laptop, and you say, you know, those are really different. And then you say, no, in a way, they're not. Uh, I mean, that, that portable typewriter is not a shovel. It's not a mixing bowl. You look at the uh, uh, keyboard and you say, you know, it's sort of like that laptop. They're sort of similar in a way, even though they seem to be miles apart. There's a carryover. There's a resemblance. And so with Christian ministry as well, uh, there's much that's different in our day from Ezekiel's ministry as a prophet. For one thing, ministers don't receive direct divine revelation from the Lord as Ezekiel did. We work with the words of the apostles and prophets in the scriptures. Uh, and uh, we're not uh, among Israelite exiles in Babylon, but we're working among a post-cross, post-resurrection uh, church that's scattered over the world. And for the most part, Christian ministers today aren't as bizarre as Ezekiel tended sometimes to be as well. So there are differences, but there's a carryover and, and, and so on. So the background here is you're at 592 BC, you're in Babylon. Some of the people of Judah have been trucked into exile there in Babylon. And among them was here a 30-year-old man of priestly descent who would never be able to serve in the ruined Jerusalem temple. But he was called to preach to these captives. Now... <laughs> He was in, as you can tell from the text, for a less than thrilling ministry. But that ministry, I think, is instructive for us tonight. So let's look at it. So what do we see about ministry here? Well, first of all, I want you to notice the status of ministry, the status of ministry. Chapter 2, verse 1, and you see it throughout the text. Son of man, he said, Stand on your feet so that I can speak with you. Son of man, son of man. Uh, eight times in, in these two chapters, son of man. Ninety-three times in Ezekiel, that's the way Yahweh speaks to Ezekiel, son of man. John Mackay says that uh, the Lord never calls Ezekiel by his personal name. It's always son of man. No one, what's it mean? Well, it means 
Son of man means you're, he's human. Yeah, he's man. That's different from son of man language in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. It's different here. It means he's a man. Uh, he's human. Uh, now, some of our translators now uh, break out in hives, of course, when uh, you have anything masculine like son and man. Uh, and so the gender neutral uh, uh, people want to translate it as, oh, mortal, or uh, oh, human. It just doesn't have a rhetorical ring, uh, among other things. There's nothing wrong with the literal. A son of man. You're, you're human. You're a man, and so on. It's not disparaging. It's just accurate. And that's the way Yahweh addresses Ezekiel here. Now, not only Ezekiel, but all servants of Christ need to remember. You need to remember who you are and what your status is. Christ's servants must never swagger or strut. You need to remember you're a son of man or a daughter of man. In James McPherson's uh, book on the war between the states, he tells of uh, Salmon Chase, who was the Secretary of the Treasury under Abraham Lincoln. And um, Chase was a very uh, uh, able man. Uh, he had been a governor, I think, and a senator, and uh, Supreme Court justice, and now he was Secretary of Treasury, and so on, and he had ambitions, thought maybe Lincoln needed to be replaced in the 1864 election, and so on. But um, one of his uh, friends, Senator Ben Wade, had a certain comment about uh, Salmon Chase. He said, Chase is a good man, but his theology is unsound. He thinks there's a fourth person in the Trinity. Now, that's not good, but, but we have the same sort of thing, don't we, going on. Sometimes we get our little self-deity gene going. Oh, we wouldn't admit it directly, of course, but it does. And sometimes we tend to think that the Lord is just rather privileged to have us serving Him. Uh, and, and we need to be brought back son of man I realize who we really are. It's as if, it's as if we need to go uh, to uh, John the Baptist again. Uh, it'll come up, I think, in Dr. Stewart's exposition soon. In John chapter 1, uh, they sent to John and say, who are you, and so on, and is that delightful, that delightful text that says, he confessed, he did not deny, but confessed. And then he said, I am not the Messiah. Now there are times, you know, when the Holy Spirit has to take you by the sleeve and pull you aside and say to you, I want you to repeat five words. I am not the Messiah. That's the status of ministry, son of man. Now, secondly, you see here the simplicity of ministry. Chapter 2, verse 7, to begin with, you see it also in chapter 3, verse 4 and 11. But look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, you shall speak my words to them. The simplicity of ministry. Now, the main point there is, is just a certain refreshing simplicity about this, isn't there? 
Aren't there times when you think if he can just take the machete and cut out a lot of this responsibility and that responsibility and this load and that load and just get down to what really matters? And here it is. You shall speak my words to them, the simplicity of ministry. Now, uh, if he's going to speak the Lord's words to to these exiles, how is he prepared for that? Well, if you look at chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 3, you see that. There's that little section in there and that vision that Ezekiel has of a scroll. A scroll uh, that's written on both sides, not good stuff, lamentations and mourning and woe and so on. And he's told to eat the scroll. That is, uh, uh, take in my word, Ezekiel. Assimilate it. Make it a part of your bloodstream and so on. Suck it up. Make it your own. Uh, Assimilate my word and then go speak to the house of Israel. You see that again in chapter 3 verse 4. You shall speak my words to them. But you you, uh, imbibe it. Imbibe my word and then you go speak it. I think there's something there. I know there are all sorts of things that ministers are called to do, etc. But you shall speak my words to them. The simplicity of ministry. That's what really matters. And I think here's a possible correction for congregations sometimes. You need to realize primarily that the minister is not an administrator. He's not a mini-CEO. He's not um, a uh, program director or a recruiter or a community organizer or a corporate cheerleader, but a minister of the word. It's that Acts 6 verse 4 pattern. We'll give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And that's to be the focus. So don't try by your spoken or unspoken expectations to try to make Him something other than He's supposed to be. You shall speak my words to them. Uh, Willie Mays, a star outfielder of the old New York Giants and later the San Francisco Giants, uh, uh, was sometimes criticized because uh, they thought he was too quiescent about speaking up for the rights of his, of his uh, black race and so on. Some of them thought that Willie should be more in the forefront and pushing the envelope and so on. And whether they agreed with him or not, uh, Willie had his own defense. Uh, he said, I'm a ball player. I'm not a politician, or a writer, or a historian. I can do best for my people by doing what I do best. There's a certain simplicity in that, whether they agreed with it or not. And so with the ministry of the Word, this is the focus. And so chapter 2, verse 7, and you shall speak my words to them. Is that what is happening in the ministry here? If so, what more do you want? Now then thirdly, notice the severity of ministry. The severity of ministry. Here we look at two sections, chapter 2, verses 3 to 7, if you want to reference, and chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. Now, the very first thing that Ezekiel hears after that opening uh, address and so on 
is uh, there in uh, about verse 3 or so, the first words he hears are nations of rebels. That, that's not exactly geared to put joy in your heart. Uh, that's a real downer. And uh, as you look at the text here, notice how the Lord really um, works that into Ezekiel's uh, mind. Uh, you remember as we looked at uh, chapter 2, verse 8 through chapter 3, verse 3, that was that vision of the scroll and eating the scroll. But if you look at before, the section before, in chapter 2, verse 3 through 7, and then after that scroll section in chapter 3, verses 4 or 5, 5 to 9, uh, you notice that in those sections, the Lord is underscoring how tough this is going to be. The words rebellious house describing Israel occur five times in our, in our passage. It's going to be hard going Ezekiel. And he pounds that into him. You might say, we had a, a preaching professor in my first go round in seminary and he used to have the, uh, the expression that if he was going to uh, impose a, a particularly ominous uh, assignment to us, he would say, now this is going to make the edges of your soul curl up. Um, I always tried to envision that. I, I had trouble envisioning a soul. I, I, I sort of thought of it as a kind of a flat piece of parchment, perhaps, and then, and then the, the edges of it curling up in fright and fear and so on. But uh, that was his way, and that's sort of what the Lord is telling Ezekiel, though, in all seriousness. Uh, you've, got, you've got a bunch of rebels here, uh, and I'm sending you to them, and this is going to be tough. Now, just a slight tangent here, all right? Um, I think we need uh, this uh, sort of realism today for the ministry in the church. I think there's a sort of a ethos sometimes around uh, in Christian circles, a sort of a ministry culture, I would call it, that often gives a different impression uh, of, of, of ministry, uh, namely that if, you just give, if we just give ourselves to prayer, if we formulate a ministry strategy, if we devise a workable vision statement, if we attend the latest how-to conferences, if we use the word missional a lot, and if we read blogs of our favorite evangelical and reform gurus and follow certain websites and meet in a weekly accountability group, then, then you can't help but be successful in ministry. I exaggerate a little bit, but you get the point. Uh, this is a strange sort of a thing, isn't it? The severity of ministry, but no, no. Sometimes ministry is just hard and disappointing. There's often this severity, and no one knew that better than John Calvin, which must mean that I'm right when I say this. Uh, but. <laughs> There was a time when Calvin and his friend William Farrell were kicked out of Geneva in about 1538. They had a run-in with the city authorities, etc. They threw them out. 
Calvin went to Strasbourg, and he was there for about three years, the three happiest years of his life, scholars uh, uh, tend to say. And, and uh, then something happened. Uh, things began to fall apart in Geneva, and things weren't going so well. And uh, uh, the authorities as that came to power uh, were tending to be pro-Calvin a little bit more, so they, they uh, called Calvin and wanted him to come back. Well, he didn't want to. Uh, he, he did. They didn't want to. And here's, here's what Calvin's assessment was of ministry in Geneva. There is no place under heaven that I'm more afraid of. I would rather submit to a hundred other deaths than to that cross on which I would have to perish a thousand times every day. He was given to hyperbole, but you get the point. <laughs> ministry can be really disappointing. That's the severity of ministry. Now, we've got to make a little transition here in a way because the severity of, of ministry, at least in our situations here normally, is not exactly the same as the kind of severity Ezekiel was going to be facing. Well, sometimes it can be, but not usually. Now, what, what might be the severity that <clears throat> you run in in ministry today? Well, not so much nations of rebels as sometimes agents of irritation. Sometimes, you know, there's, there are some people, and they're, fortunately they're a remnant, but, but um, <laughs> there, are, there are some who just can't put up with anything a minister does, and they will find fault and crab about it and, and do consistently and so on. And that's why sometimes a minister has to sit down with that man or woman uh, and, and say to him, look, you're a pain <laughs> where I ought not have a pain. <laughs> and I think it's time that you go and help another church. <laughs> and sometimes you have to do that. Is it? agents of irritation. But then also there are certain, and it depends again on the church and the setting and all that sort of thing. Sometimes there's, an, there, there's, a, there's a matter of an attitude or an air. It's almost indifference or, or, or apathy. I, I mean, there, there are uh, congregations uh, who could care less that it took you 18 hours of preparation in order to get together that sermon for 30 minutes. And they could care less. And again, depending on the congregation and circumstances, the minister may, may, may take six or eight hours a week in order to plan out the morning and the evening worship services. And people don't necessarily care about that. And there are people who don't really give a rip if their minister spends time in private prayer or not. Well, that can be a little bit of the severity of ministry if you're facing that sort of thing. But perhaps the severity comes most from the wear of ministering among a people who are beaten and battered by the troubles and sadnesses of life. Because that's what happens in our churches, isn't it? Like, like what are those? Oh, they're, they're legion. Uh, there may be a young man of a junior in high school 
right raised in a Christian home, but he's addicted himself to internet pornography and he's sabotaging every chance of a workable marriage in the future. And that wrenches, that wrenches you. Or there's the husband that walks out on his family. Or there's the uh, father and mother who put their six-year-old son in an early grave. Or there's the 39-year-old wife and mother whose doctor has just mentioned the C word. Or there's that number of people who um, uh, join the category of widow or widower and have to plod on alone by themselves even for any number of years and so on and so on. There are all sorts of, of, of matters like that. And sometimes a, a minister has to say, Lord, you said weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning, but there doesn't seem to be much joy here. It seems like you're crushing your people. Now, that's part of the severity of ministry as well. You sense that load if you have a heart at all. Now, I want to back away, though. We've, we've taken some time to try to say, well, what kinds of severity in ministry do we face now? But I want to back away and come back again at the main principle of what the Lord was telling Ezekiel about the hardship of his ministry. And... I hope that you see in this severity a certain bit of encouragement for every Christian believer. Did you stop to think how kind God was to Ezekiel? He told him exactly what he would be facing. He didn't hide anything from him. Isn't God good? And this is something Jesus does for all his servants, not just ministers. You remember what he said in John 16 and verse 1? All this I've told you so that you, to keep you from falling away. What's all this? All this that I told you in John chapter 15 about the world hating you. All this I've told you to keep you from falling away. Isn't Jesus good? to let us know how severe it may be in our Christian life and ministries. Isn't Jesus good to be so candid? He didn't put it in small print. He didn't hide it in an end note at the end of the book. He came right out and laid it out. You can trust a Savior like that. A severity of ministry. Now, I want to push your patience just a little more. I want you to notice, fourthly, the support of ministry the support of ministry, and that's in chapter 1, actually. But Ezekiel's ministry was going to be mostly a downer, we would say, and even Ezekiel was really upset about it. When you look in chapter 3, verse 14, and so on, I went bitter in the fury of my spirit. He was ticked about this. He didn't like this at all. But hand of Yahweh was strong over me. Now, if that's the case, how can one plow on in a situation like that? What incentive does Ezekiel have, for one, to push ahead anyway? Huh. 
Well, did you notice that chapter 2 begins with the word and? And he said to me, that is, there's a connection between chapter 2 and chapter 1 that precedes it. Now, you won't always see and there because some translations don't translate it. The ESV does, the New King James, and so on. The NIV doesn't. It starts a new sentence. Uh, Some translations, you know, are concerned about English style. And uh, that's not good. You've probably heard people, grammatical gurus, tell you never start a sentence with a conjunction, all that sort of nonsense. Um, uh, But no, no, it begins with and. And that means... There's a connection with what precedes, what precedes. Oh, chapter 1, that vision that uh, there was. And, and what, does, what, what does chapter 1 consist of? It consists of the introduction of the speaker of chapters 2 and 3 of Ezekiel. Uh, it introduces the Lord. But it takes 28 verses, you might say, to introduce the speaker. And then you read, and, he said to me. There's a connection. And what do you find in chapter 1? Oh, you say, I've tried to read through Ezekiel before, and I got into chapter 1 and I quit. Uh, You might say, Davis, don't you know that there are all kinds of gobs of of, of, uh, 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 problems in the Hebrew text there, Uh, and so on. Yes, yes, yes. If you had seen what Ezekiel had seen, it would have messed up your grammar too. Now, what you have to understand is, chapter 1's not so tough at all. Really, really. What, what do you have there? Well, just, just, you don't have to look at it, but think about it. You have four living creatures described, verses 4 to 14 in chapter 1. Four living creatures. Next section, you have wheels described, verses 15 to 21. Apparently big wheels and wheels that could go in any direction, maybe kind of universal casters of some kind, I don't know, uh, but, but wheels. And then it says there's an, a stretched out area, an expanse, verses 22 to 25, and that's above these living creatures and, and the wheels at their side, and there's this stretched out area. And above the expanse, the, third se- the fourth section is verses 26 to 28, there's a likeness of a throne. And above the expanse, verse 26, over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. The likeness of a throne. That was the climax of the vision. That was the focal point. That's what's supposed to arrest you. And then you come into chapters 2 and 3. Now, there's a throne. Uh, uh, That's the focal point. It's supposed to grab you. That's, now, you've, you've probably uh, overheard, perhaps, uh, amateur interior decorators uh, say something about focal points in a room. Sometimes you, there's a huge portrait, perhaps, in a room that dominates it and just draws your attention, so on. It was a time when we were leaving, or, or not quite ready to leave Hattiesburg, Mississippi, in a ministry there. And, we had sold our house, and uh, the people needed to get into it. We couldn't leave yet, um, so we had to find uh, temporary digs, and we found a, a two-bedroom apartment, put a bunch of our stuff in storage, and moved out, and, um, 
uh, got into this two-bedroom apartment uh, with just our essentials and so on, but uh, we had no garage there, we had no storage room and so on. Uh, so I uh, had to, uh, what to do with my weight set. Um, well, now this was not some sort of super home gym thing. It was just a basic wider weight set that had barbells and gizmo to do leg lifts on. This is very basic and so on. And where are you going to put it? Put it right in the middle of the living room. <laughs> there was a sort of focal point. Uh, you came into our house, you came into the living room, rested your attention. Now that's what that likeness of a throne is meant to do here in Ezekiel 1. Let that grab you. Do you get the point? It's saying Yahweh reigns. He reigns in Babylon, Ezekiel. He reigns in Israel. Yahweh reigns and therefore you can do this. Hard as it may be. It's the, it's the same pattern Jesus gives us in the New Testament, isn't it? You remember in the book of Revelation, you remember chapters 2 and 3, and you have the letters to the seven churches, and you remember how you have, well, things aren't so great in most of those seven churches. You have attacks from outside the church. You have the insidious uh, growth of false teaching inside the church. And the church is just a pretty wobbly sort of affair, isn't it? And then you get to Revelation chapter 4. And you know what you read. There was a door open in heaven. And why a throne set in heaven and one sitting on the throne. The church may be in dire straits, but Jesus reigns. It's not going to go down the tube. That's the support of ministry. You have a Lord who already reigns. So you can wade into it. There's a throne. That's the support of ministry even in down times. So Yahweh reigns. And therefore, I can pick myself up from the river Kebar, and I can put one foot in front of another, and I can go speak to the house of Israel because there's a throne and there's one sitting on it. Oh Lord, how good you are to us. How you take care of your servants how you are so careful to keep us from despair and how we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.